what is a prayer that God loves to answer, and that is the prayer that we would want to know Him, that we would want to behold Him, we would want to see Him. And certainly, He loves to answer that prayer, and He loves to answer the prayer of the one who says, I want to hear you, Lord. I need to hear you. This morning, our prayer is that our hearts would awaken, our ears would open, our eyes would be enlightened by the vision of Christ as revealed in the Scriptures. Jesus is not afar off from anyone who seeks after him. And this morning, we seek to declare him. This is, again, this is a prayer that he answers. Matter of fact, before we even pray, Lord, I want to see you, he's already inviting us, come and see. Come and see and hear. And that's the title of the message this morning in the series of In Their Shoes. We want to see Christ. We want to see him as has been faithfully recorded in the scriptures through the eyes of the disciples in their shoes. And I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the scriptures of the Gospel of Matthew and Matthew chapter 13. This will be one of the texts that we handle this morning. Then also later we'll be in the first chapter of John, John 1. But let's begin in Matthew 13. And Jesus has shared several parables, the parables of the sowers, and he has been sharing a lot of kingdom truths and, and what life is like to live with him um, through the means of parables. But this strikes a chord in the hearts of the disciples as they seek to understand what this teaching method is and the mystery of the method. And, and so it brings them to an inquiry of Christ. And so in Matthew chapter 13... Jesus, uh, we'll begin in verse number 10, and Jesus begins to speak to them uh, as he responds. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered to them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has more will be given, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled and says, you will indeed see, but you will never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can hardly hear. And their eyes they have closed, that they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Thus says the Word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we have joined together as people whose eyes have seen and whose ears have heard. We are the blessed ones. For us are the secrets of the kingdom. For us is the abundance of revelation. And Father, we pray that we might steward this revelation, that we might bring it to bear upon our hearts, that we might, we might live as ones who are seeing and hearing Jesus. 
Father, we pray that you might teach us what it means to see Jesus this morning. That you might teach us what it means to hear this morning. Use this time to glorify your Son in our church. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, one of my favorite authors for leisure reading is uh, a man named Bob Goff. And he tells a story in one of his books um, how he and his friend and another friend, his girlfriend, a long time ago were going to Washington, D.C. on a business trip. And they had been close to Capitol Hill um, in the middle of the night at midnight. And they saw a bunch of cars just kind of scattered, parked outside the Library of Congress. And it seemed that there was a little bit of a barricade going on there. And they decided to investigate. And they discovered that what was happening in the Library of Congress was the filming of a, of a, a movie called The National Treasure. And this was the second one, National Treasure 2. And they set out a plan. They ran back to their hotel and they changed from their suits and their dress clothes that they had been wearing all day to blue jeans and t-shirts in order to kind of look the part of the film crew, part of the crew making the, the movie. And they went back and they, they dodged a couple people looking around, acting like security guards and jumped over some hedges here and there. And they finally got to a side entrance where there was a metal detector and a guard there and, and they just kind of... Um, presented themselves as if they were going to walk through. The guards said, who are you? And they said, they mumbled something about forgetting their badges and under their breath. And he let them through and said, next time, you know, bring your badges. And they're all of a sudden, they realize that they're in the middle of a movie set and there are, there's lights and cameras and all sorts of stuff going on. And they were able to enjoy what was going on. They, they saw the director directing things and and uh, after the filming, they began to plan how they were going to get out without being caught. And suddenly they found themselves, Bob Goff, of course, found himself in the, in the presence of Nicolas Cage and Diane Kruger, who are the stars of the movie. And uh, they realized they were in their presence. And he says it was just such a thrilling adventure and a little bit of a pulsating moment there for them to be in, in this monumental movement, moment. And he says this, he says, there's a lot of things I don't get invited to. I've never been invited to the Oscars uh, or to Paul McCartney's birthday or to a space shuttle launch. He says, I'm waiting my invitation for National Treasure 3. If I got an invitation to any of those, he says, I'd definitely go. There's nothing like feeling included. There's only one invitation it would kill me to refuse, yet I'm tempted to turn it down all of the time. I get the invitation every day when I wake up to actually live a life of complete engagement, a life of whimsy, a life where love does. It's an invitation to actually live, to participate in this amazing life and God's plan of salvation for one more day. Nobody turns down an invitation to the White House. But I've seen plenty of people turn down an invitation to fully live. You know, one simply can't claim to be a follower, or a disciple of Jesus, if they don't know what he is like and what he has said to them. Every disciple must have an unreplaceable, ongoing experience with Jesus Christ. It's just foundational, isn't it, to the word disciple that we would know Jesus? And it's really foundational to life change that occurs when we know him. 
So what we are able to behold in Jesus Christ is really the perfect self-revelation of the Father. God says, if you want to know me, know my son and you will know me. And so the father is content and he is pleased that we would know him through his son. And when Jesus appeared in human history, it was like an explosion of revelation. Peter records it in 2 Peter 1.21. He says, those things that the prophets and, and the patriarchs had, had longed to, to look into, had had by faith only evidence through their sacrifices and through their obedience unto God. They had longed for millennia to look upon this revelation of God. Now we have beheld him. He is this one, Jesus. Believer, this morning we have an opportunity that is, we have the, the privilege of looking upon the one in very clear picture, as recorded in Scripture, that many, many a good man and woman a righteous man and woman, had never understood or beheld. It was like an explosion of revelation that had been simmering throughout the previous times. You see, the law had prepared us to recognize what the Messiah would look like through Moses' teaching, through his commands. But the law also did something simultaneously as it was projecting, as it was revealing what, who the Messiah would be like. Simultaneously, the law was also stripping us of our self-righteousness so that not only would we see what Jesus would be like, but we would understand why we needed him so badly. Simultaneously, the law was doing that. It was, it was, it was drawing the portrait of Christ and then working on the inner man within us to show us just how desperately we needed him. So when John opens his gospel, he says that Jesus was grace upon grace. Don't you love that? But D.A. Carson comments about that in, in the Revelation, this finally Jesus has come on the scene. And that's how John opens his book is, is he's arrived. He's, he's God in the flesh. Carson, the theologian, says, for all the Old Testament revelation, the things that we've been given in the law taught by Moses, the great hero of the faith in a millennium and a half earlier, all these things were there, but now grace and truth, par excellence, come in Jesus and his cross. No one has ever seen God. You don't look at him. You don't gaze at him. But the one and only son who is himself God, that's what we read in that first verse in John, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, who is himself God. This God has made himself known through Jesus, Carson says. And Carson draws our attention to John's prologue, to John's unpacking of this is God. Jesus is God. D.A. Carson says, do you hear what John is saying? Do you want to see what God is like? Look at Jesus. This really is a question of our hearts so many times, isn't it, as disciples and followers of Christ? God, what are you like? What are you doing? Who are you, God? Well, God says, look at Jesus. He goes on, I know it's an, an, an accommodated vision. The Father is eternal. He is spiritual. He is immaterial. You can't gaze on him. The Bible says that even the angels of heaven cover their faces before him. He's so transcendently glorious. But the closest thing we're going to get to in this life to seeing what God is like is to look at Jesus. 
disciple of Christ this morning, are you looking at Jesus? You see, disciples must see Jesus and his work. Disciples must see Jesus and his work. So this morning, we're going to first of all look at the first truth that we understand and that Jesus invites his disciples to see his work. God displays his power through Jesus Christ to the world. How does God show his almighty power? He does so through the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, there are many, for instances, in which we as human beings have looked upon the power of God. Some were very urgent to see this this revelation, this breaking through of the invisible, the immaterial God into human flesh, and we know them as the wise men. And they came with urgency, and they bowed with humility, and they worshiped with great piety. This God who had, who had now become the material, who now had become the substantial, who had now become the incarnate, they couldn't wait to see the power of God displayed in a babe. Angels out in the pastures shouted and with numbers, multitude upon multitude, uh, displayed and invited the shepherds to come behold the wondrous works of God now solidified in this babe, Jesus. The almighty God of the universe had moved finally, and had demonstrated his power in a gracious way towards mankind in the babe, Jesus. And angels said, do you want to see the power of God? The come look upon the babe. So shepherds would see the power of God. Wise men would see the power of God. And all throughout the Gospels, we'll see miracle upon miracle when, when the, the lame leap, like in Mark chapter 2, when they would take apart the roof and lower a man before the feet of Jesus, and Jesus would make him to rise up and to take up his bed and walk out of the room. But the more powerful demonstration would be in that moment that Jesus would wash the heart of this man clean of all of his sins. He would say, son, your sins are forgiven. This is the power of God through Jesus Christ. And Jesus invites the disciples to see the power of God through him. And really culminating, the culminating act of the power of Jesus Christ was in the resurrection from the grave. This is the power of the resurrection that the Apostle Paul speaks of. We are called to behold the power of God in the many ways and works of Christ throughout his life, but but in no greater way than to see the, the testimony of the empty tomb. And you and I are called this morning as the wise men were, as the shepherd was, as the people were in that little Bible conference in the home now without a roof, and as the ones who had run to embalm the body and found an empty tomb, we are called upon this morning as disciples of Jesus Christ to to behold the power of Almighty God of heaven incarnate in the Son, Jesus Christ. 
You are called to encounter the power of God in Jesus Christ. Are you looking? So often I think our theology and our life is anemic of power because we simply have denied the invitation to behold the work of God afresh in Jesus Christ for ourselves. We're content to stay in the pastures in the nighttime. We're okay to stay in in the Far East. We're okay to stay back in the upper room and grieve the loss. But we do not perceive and we do not hear the invitation of Christ and God Almighty. Behold, this is the Son in whom I am well pleased, as we read in Luke this morning. The invitation for Christ to you this morning is to view him again and to never walk away from seeing him because it is in him that the almighty power of God is demonstrated. But Jesus then, in his power, then demonstrates the power of God not only in his salvific work, his saving work, but he longs to use his power. He longs to, to, to work his power through people. This isn't just a sideshow or an act. But Jesus loves to demonstrate his power in, in people who seem afar off, like people like Zacchaeus, whose life is lived totally lived out in materialistic ways, through schemes and through career ambitions and through trying to make sure status quo is met with friends never stepping out above them in order to seem more religious. But Christ's power is made display, is displayed very clearly in the transforming grace in the one who comes to him humbly. O believer and disciple of Christ, do not discount the power of Christ when you want to see Jesus and God move in ways of moving cancer out of a family or or moving a mountain or opening a door or closing a door. And you want to see Jesus work in the spectacular, in, in the material. But Jesus says the most powerful work that I have to do is really in the human heart. It's transforming one whose eternal destiny was always to go to to hell, but now has been translated as it's transferred into going to heaven and fitting them for the life in heaven. This transforming grace, this saving grace of Jesus Christ is the most powerful work of God in display in this world. So Jesus demonstrates his power, the power of the Almighty God, through the lives of those who look to him. There is a dependence that disciples need to have upon this power. You say, I don't know that I have felt or experienced the power of God in my life. It's been a while. I feel a little numb towards God's power in my life. I know he has great power. I read it. I know it. I believe it. But I don't know that I experience his power working in my life. 
Jesus says to that disciple who says, I don't know your power. He says, let me show you. Come and see. Come and see. Turning to John chapter 1 and verse 35, this will be where we are for the remainder of this message this morning. The next day again, John was standing with the two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following him. And he said to them, what are you seeking? Now think about that question again. What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon, and he said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, with Cephas which means Peter. Notice that Jesus does not ask them, who do you seek? But he asks them, what do you seek? This is not an unfriendly question. This isn't a question meant to put them off, intended to turn them away. Rather, the question seems designed to encourage them to to verbalize, to express what they want from Jesus to crystallize just what they are doing. These two men may have been caught off guard by the question because they, they respond, um, where are you staying? We find them a little unsure about this conversation. Where are you staying? He says, what, what are you seeking after? And they, they don't know how to answer that. But they start to lean in on some of the wisdom of this rabbi, and they say, where are you staying? And their response is really actually turns out to be the right response to the question, what are you seeking? They're wanting to follow Jesus. They want to be his disciples because they want to see and to hear more from him. They want to draw in near to him. They want to know what he's up to, what he's like. They want to spend more time with him. And so the Lord's answer is very encouraging. Come and see. Come and see. It's a very different answer than what he had given other inquirers. For example, in Luke chapter 9, he records, Luke records, as they were walking along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And, And so the disciples, the crowd kind of dissipates. It's a different response that Jesus has towards them. Are you sure you want to be where I am? He says in Luke 9. But here with the disciples, he says, come and see. Come and see. If being a disciple literally means 
following one's master, following one's teacher, then it seems reasonable that one would want to stay with the master. And Jesus is telling these would-be disciples, these would-be volunteers, that there is nowhere to stay, that there was nowhere to stay, may have been a polite word for our Lord, really to decline the offer to become his disciple in Luke chapter 9. That is, you, you don't know what you're asking. You need to be asking if you can be with me. You need to be asking to be with me, not to just work for me. So when Jesus in Matthew chapter 13 encourages John's two disciples to come and see where he is staying, he seems to be in, inviting them to follow him as his disciple. When we ask the question of what do we want from Jesus, if I were to ask you this morning, what do you want from Jesus? How do you answer that question? The answer to, your, to that question really reveals a lot about ourselves. It's really the question, what are we seeking? What are you seeking? It's a revealing question because it may show us the version of Jesus that we're believing upon. It is the version of Jesus, really a self-made image of Jesus that you're seeking after. Is it even Jesus that you're seeking after at all? What do you want from Jesus? But Jesus understands that we might not come to him with the perfect answer to the question. What do you seek? But nonetheless, even this morning, and through this eternal word of God, Jesus says, come and see. Come and see. There's more to Jesus than you would think of when you first look at him. He invites us to look on him. And the problem is that we may think we know what we saw. What we think we see of Jesus and he wants to show us of himself may be two entirely different things. We may have a version of Christ that might not actually be the Christ. We may think we know a lot about him and be content with our knowledge of him and who he is may be an entirely different person. And really that's at the heart of Jesus' invitation to these two disciples. Come and see where I'm staying tonight. What's significant about that? All of it is significant about that statement. It's not a casual statement. Everything that Christ said was jam-packed with life-changing truth. This isn't merely a, a logistical invitation. This isn't just a hotel vacation tour. Let me see where I'm staying. It's really great. But Jesus has begun his journey to the cross, which started really from Bethlehem in the manger which actually, corrected, started when he stepped down from his privileged position by the right hand of the Father. So the come and see is, is come and see what I've come to be doing. It's not just come and see this place that I'm spending the night. So where Jesus stays is important to know because it will reveal much about who he is. Because let's recognize, first of all, in where Jesus is staying on this night, 
is on earth. It's simple, isn't it? But let's just back up the truck a little bit and recognize this. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is telling these two inquiring disciples, I'm staying here on earth. Secondly, I'm not staying in a palace. Let me show you where I'm going. Thirdly, I'm staying with you. I'm here. I'm not in a palace. I'm with you. But it will also teach the disciples more about how to follow him too. The disciple will need to stay with Jesus. This is an invitation to come and see, but it's an invitation to come. The disciple will need to stay with Jesus. And the disciple will need to stay at places like he did. No, not necessarily that geographical and that cultural type of place, historically speaking. But the disciple will need to stay at places like Jesus did, that is to be in situations that for the disciple may feel uncertain. Rabbi, where are you staying? Come and see. You may not know where Jesus is taking you, but it's important that you're with him. It really makes all the difference. It will involve uncertainty, but he says, come and see. So places like these disciples stayed at are places in our lives as well. They may be a place that is not very comfortable for one reason or another. It may mean that the place where we are with Jesus is a humiliating place or a place where there's a humbling work of God in our lives. It may even be a place that's just mundane. The humdrum of Tuesday at 10 o'clock in the morning or, or a Thursday at 7.30 p.m. Jesus is staying there. The non-spectacular. But the bottom line for the disciple is that you have to want to see Jesus. Do you want to see Jesus? Well, he has given the invitation, come and see. But secondly, Jesus invites his disciples to hear his words. In John chapter 10, Jesus says in verse 22, at the time of the feast of the dedication took place in Jerusalem, it was winter. And Jesus was walking into the temple and into the con the culminate of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. But Jesus answered and said to them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. 
Jesus says in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Listen, the power of God, the work of God is made manifest through the voice of God. The word of God. The power of God is manifested through his word. Jesus seems content to say that. Because when he follows, what he follows with, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Listen, he begins with the voice. My sheep hear my voice. That's where all of the disciples' life begins. That's where life, that's where nourishment is. But listen, so much is in the voice of God and that is the word of God. The Father's voice and the Son's voice are one. And the voice of God, the word of God, transforms the lives of his disciples. First of all, disciples are those ones who hear the voice of Jesus. They hear the voice of God in the word of God. If you're sitting here today and you consider yourself to be a Christian, if you've always claimed to be a Christian, if you've made, even made a profession of faith, maybe you've even prayed a prayer, but you do not hear the voice of God when the word of God is brought to bear upon in, in your uh, presence. If there's not a burning uh, response, a burning accept, acceptance, a burning change of the word of God in your heart, you are not hearing the voice of God because those who hear the voice of God, listen, number one, Jesus says, follow me. They don't just play the game of Christianity. They don't just figure out what it is to do to just be in a culture of good people or even the church of God. They are, number one, following Jesus Christ. No tradition, no way of doing things. They're following Jesus Christ. Those who hear the voice of Jesus follow him. And secondly, they are known by him. The ones that hear the voice of Jesus follow him and he knows them. If you're here today and you, you do not know Jesus Christ as Savior, Jesus doesn't know you either. He doesn't know you. And he says, by following his voice, you receive eternal life. That is abundant life. And in that abundant life, you never fear perishing, the fading away of your personhood. You never fear punishment and judgment from God. The best awaits you. And no one can ever take that away from you. Because the voice of Jesus has so transformed your nature and your destiny that you are forever a follower of Jesus. So the works of God are made manifest to the word of God. How is God working in this world? Well, he's working in setting up kings and taking down kings. He's working in times of war and he's working in times of peace. He's working in times of 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 sickness and in times of health. But most significantly, God is working a work of grace in the human heart who calls upon Jesus Christ to be their savior. God works in people and people like you and I who are simply asking the question, where are you staying? 
And the Word of God is how God's voice is heard today. The Word of God is how God's voice is heard today. You say, I just wish God would, would speak to me more clearly. I wish God would be more personal with me. I wish God would reveal himself more fully to me. Well, the disciples have given us the words of Christ so that we too can learn of him and be changed. They're giving to us this accurate eyewitness account in the writings of these gospels and further the writings of the New Testament. They're giving to us what had been given to them. We have the advantage. We get to behold Christ like they did. We are at no disadvantage. We may think we are at a disadvantage because we do not see Jesus physically, materially with us in his presence. But John says in 1 John chapter 1, those things that I had seen and heard and touched and his voice is still ringing in my ears, I deliver it to you as a faithful testimony. He was the son of God and in him is the eternal life. God is content to tell you and I that what we have in the word of God is sufficient to behold himself. We are at no disadvantage. This faithful testimony that we find in the scriptures is able to make you a disciple of Jesus Christ. You say, I want to be like Peter. I want to be like John. I want to be like the Apostle Paul. Listen, the word of God has been delivered to us in such a faithful way that our lives can be transformed into living a life like an apostle of Jesus Christ. And you say, I have a long ways to go. We may all feel that way, but every possibility and every capacity lays within our hearts if we will take the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ, and hear Jesus like the disciples heard him. And when we hear Jesus like the disciples heard him, we will become disciples like the disciples. Jesus had said in that passage in Matthew chapter 13, there were those who heard, but they didn't hear. The distinction of the disciple is that the disciple hears the voice of Christ and this voice of Christ has given them a foundational, profound life change. They're not the same. The disciple hears the voice of Christ and it brings understanding into their life. And the disciple has, has the promises of more revelation that will be given to them when they steward what they have. Jesus says, blessed are you for you have received this revelation and you who are blessed with some will be blessed with more. And this is the promise of great hope. It's what we were leaning into when we sang the song right before uh, we came up and opened the word together this morning. Open our eyes, Lord. I wanna see Jesus. Yes, there's more to see of him, believer. This is a promise of great hope. Those who desire to know God more through his word can know God more. You can know God more. You can draw closer to him. You can understand more about him. You can become even more satisfied in him than you had ever thought. And each new day of walking with Jesus brings more and more of his self-revelation to us through Jesus Christ. If you are seeking to know Jesus Christ, you will never be bored 
And you will never be dissatisfied. And you will never be unchanged. But his invitation to you is just so, so profoundly simple. Come and see the place where I stay. A friend, I don't believe that our spiritual, our spirituality being anemic, being bored, being apathetic is due to uh, a lack of um, a lack of God's desire to show us who he is or a lack of revelation. It's just due to us not obediently responding to the invitation, come and see. Come and see. It really is a matter of obedience. It's an invitation, but there's an unction to it. Come and see that you may live. But if you don't come and see, I can't help you. So it's a matter of obedience. As we move in this series of disciple making, we've been dealing the past several weeks with just what it is at the heart of a disciple. Firstly, seeing that Jesus wants to make disciples. He wants to make you into a faithful, loving, devoted disciple. He has prayed to that end. Jesus wants to make disciples, and he wants to make disciples who are making disciples. Because that's what disciples do. Disciples make disciples. And if disciples are going to make disciples, there is no substitute for hearing and seeing Jesus. There's no substitute. You can't... You can't make disciples, your life can't impact anybody else's life if eternally if you're not seeing and hearing Jesus. You can check off all the lists of things that you ought to do as a Christian, but if you aren't seeing and hearing Jesus in the word, you are not equipped to make disciples. And there is no greater equation for making disciples than that a true disciple of Christ is just sharing with others what he is seeing and what he is hearing. You see, Jesus isn't asking for you to publish your own book on how to make a disciple. He's not asking for you to come up with some sort of Sunday school curriculum to walk someone through. He's really essentially not even asking you to find a book that's been challenging to you spiritually to encourage someone else to read and maybe reading it with them. Listen, it is more, far more simple than that. And I would say it's far more doable than that. If that's what you think discipleship is, you're just missing it. Because really foundationally and simply making disciples is saying to others, Come and see and hear what I am seeing and hearing. That's all I want you to do. It's just telling them, join with me in looking at this one and hearing what he has to say. Like the woman at the well who said to so many in the town, this man told me what things were of my life. Come and see, you must 
meet them. You don't have to make up a manual for, for discipleship. You don't have to have it all figured out. But you first begin to be with Jesus. Jesus wants to be with you so that he can make you an apprentice and train you and then go and tell. But you're not making anything up to tell them. You're just saying, this is what it was like to be with Jesus. This is what it's like to be with him. This is what he's teaching me right now. This is who he is. Come and see and hear. Disciples are those who are willing, they're following Christ, and they're sharing what it is like to follow him with others. That's it. It's not more complex than that. Discipleship is simple. It's not easy often, but it is simple. We make it hard. It is seeing and it is hearing. That's discipleship. Seeing and it is hearing. And then it is sharing what has been seen and what has been heard with anyone who will listen. And we do that all the time. We recommend businesses. We tell stories about our life to other people, things that happen to us. Well, discipleship is simply telling the greatest story to anyone who will listen. And one reason I believe that many Christians are not discipling other people is because they are not being discipled. They are not following Jesus. They're not beholding him. They're not seeing him and hearing him. They have departed from Jesus and returned to their nets. They're not seeing and savoring Jesus for themselves, so they don't have anything to share. You wonder, why isn't my life impacting others' lives for Jesus Christ? It's because you don't have anything to share. But if you had come and stayed with Jesus, you'd have more than enough to share. You wouldn't even know where to begin, but you would start somewhere. And one of the reasons why many Christians are not discipling is because they don't have anything to share. Sure, they know some facts about Jesus, like some, some encyclopedic knowledge of Christ. But they weren't with him today or yesterday. So they don't really have a fresh experience with Christ to share. His voice, as John would put it in 1 John 1, his voice isn't ringing in their ears. His works are not spectacular because they haven't seen them in their own heart. His works are not marvelous to them because they keep thinking God needs to do a work out there in the spectacular rather than realizing the greatest work that God is up to is transforming this sinner, this unworthy rebel into not just the image of some sort of religious person, Christian, moral being, but God's powerful work is being demonstrated in our lives as Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. God is at work in taking people like you and I who look nothing like Jesus and making us look like Jesus. 
And that's a greater work and more significant work than moving a mountain, isn't it? And so he's making a disciple out of you and I. Jesus says to his disciples, and he says to you and I as his disciples this morning, come and see. That's all it takes to be renewed in him. Come and see. It's an understated invitation to view the secrets of the divine. Anyone can come and see. You don't even have to get your life right. You don't even have to clean up your act. You don't even have to be this person or this person or anything. He just puts no requirements on it. The very beginning of following him is to behold him. It's an unqualified invitation to join with him. You say, it has been a long time since I fellowshiped with Jesus, and I feel so ashamed. It has been a while since I saw his power in my life. When I, it's been a while since I prayed really sincerely before him. It's been a while since I felt the burning of the word of God in a convicting way in my heart. Jesus says, well, come and see. You don't have to clean yourself up and figure it all out. Make a plan. Let's drop everything you have and come and see. And do you know Jesus says that like he did to these disciples on whatever day of the week it was. Jesus says to disciples like you and I every day, come and see. Come and see. Jesus makes disciples out of us when we do. And when we can make disciples of others, we're simply just repeating those words to them. It's the greatest invitation ever spoken. Come and see. Let's pray.